0: Uh, kind introduction. So I'm not talking about my book, which is a, a departure from habit. <laughs> but I am going to talk about an article. So um, so this talk is essentially based on an article that I wrote that came out uh, in, the, in the Journal of International Criminal Justice last year, and um, with sort of a follow-up piece this year on aggression. Um, essentially a spin-off from the earlier article. So the, the, the title of the article is, Is the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court Binding on Individuals? And you're probably thinking to yourself, what a moronic question to ask. What kind of a question is that? How can the Rome Statute, a treaty, be binding on individuals? What does that even mean? Okay. So let me try to explain what I mean by that and why uh, we should care about this issue. Um, so if you ask a prototypical international lawyer, sort of classically trained, whether a treaty can bind individuals, they would probably say no, because individuals are not subjects to international law. Treaties only bind their parties, people who consent to them. Okay. But if you asked a criminal lawyer whether the Rome Statute created substantive criminal law, they would say obviously it does. Right? That's the whole point of it. And so my my first point would be to say that these questions are actually one and the same. Uh, We can ask ourselves whether the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court is substantive in nature or jurisdictional in nature. So what do we mean by that? If the Rome Statute is jurisdictional in nature, that means that all those provisions that set out the crimes in the statute are crimes within the jurisdiction of the court. They only define the subject matter jurisdiction of the court. Okay. They do not create the crimes themselves. We would need to find the norm incriminating these particular offenses elsewhere in customary law, above, above all. That's, that's what happened with all statutes of all other international criminal tribunals before the ICC, with the possible exception of the London Charter of the IMT. So if you look, for example, at the ICTY statute, the ICTY statute did not create genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity. It only created a tribunal which had those offenses within its subject matter jurisdiction, while individuals who committed these acts actually offended against customary law. They were punished for violating customary law. That was also the case with the ICTR, with a Special Court for Sierra Leone, with practically any ad hoc tribunal. Now, the reason for that is that ad hoc tribunals are normally created after the events have taken place. So even if you, were, if, even if you wanted to create substantive criminal law through these tribunals, you couldn't do that retroactively. Okay. So all these tribunals always say, our statutes did not make new law, we are applying custom Okay. How they get to establishing custom is a dubious proposition. There is always more creation in that than interpretation. Okay. For, think of, for example, the Tadic decision that war crimes extended not only to international but also to internal armed conflict. But at least all these judges pretend that they're applying pre-existing customary law that bound the relevant individuals at the time they committed the offense. That means, as a corollary of this, that in all these tribunals, judges had to allow challenges to charges, or to, to the indictment, based on the proposition that the particular charges did not reflect custom. Okay, So again, this happened practically every other case. And invariably, what judges did was they said, ah, oh, yeah, sure, we accept your challenge, but on the merits, the challenge fails. This is, in fact, custom. Okay. Sometimes this was for prefer- prefer- perfectly valid reasons. Other times, it was yeah, you know, for the sake of expediency. It was sacrificing the principle of legality to punish some very, very bad people. Okay. So now the question is whether the statute of the ICC does the same thing, right? R- r- does it have? a renvoi to custom for substantive law or whether is the, the statute of the ic like a penal code in say france or germany creating these crimes regardless of what custom might say or not say on the matter and if the statute is considered to be substantive then it must also be considered to bind individuals directly through some mechanism because a norm of international criminal law, which is substantive in character, is defined as one addressing the individual, telling him or her not to do something or to do something on the pain of punishment. Okay. So that's what the, what the talk is about. I, I, I know it's not clear yet, I hope. Um, but um, let me try to explain, to elaborate on this in more detail and try to explain why this matters. Now, why this whole discussion matters in practice is for two basic reasons. One is an issue of principle. Can treaties bind individuals who do not consent to them? And I'll I'll, I'll, I'll address that issue later on. And that's a a question of general international law. The second is in the ICC-specific context, what kind of challenges to the charges should the court permit can in other words the defendant before the ICC do the exact same same thing that all the defendants before the ICTY did which was to say that this particular charge or that particular mode of liability does not comport with custom okay so that's the that's the issue okay so let me first deal with this whole again substantive versus jurisdictional statute thing so I explained the the difference not that the difference is not so um, rigid, as I made it seem. A substantive statute, whether at the same time have to be jurisdictional in nature, so it would also define the subject matter of the jurisdiction of the court, but the vice versa, the converse is not correct. Okay. This, this idea between a substantive and a jurisdictional statute is reflected also in... Um, this basic distinction that we often make in international criminal law between the so-called core crimes and the mere treaty crimes. So core crimes are aggression, genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. They are those crimes for which customary international law, mainly, directly creates individual criminal responsibility. So it directly addresses individuals and tells him not to do something on the pain of punishment. And it does so regardless of domestic law. So even if in Nazi Germany, the Holocaust was perfectly lawful, international criminal law still told those indiv- those people who did it, no, you're guilty of crimes against humanity. Or genocide, as the case may be. Okay. So those are the core crimes. As opposed to treaty crimes, like drug trafficking, various terrorism offenses, corruption, money laundering, all these things for which we have a special convention which obliges states to incriminate these particular acts in their domestic law, thereby making them criminal offenses. So they only become criminal offenses once the state has acted through its domestic law, and they assume obligations to prosecute, extradite, uh, or whatever. Okay. Um, So the difference here, again, is between international law directly creating individual criminal responsibility and obliging states to do that themselves. Now, even with regard to the core crimes, if you look, for example, at the Genocide Convention, the Genocide Convention at no point says, we are making this a crime that individuals can, from this point on, now commit. No, it's actually couched like a suppression convention, just like a drug trafficking convention. Okay. It says this is what the distribution jurisdiction will be. This is what states have to do. It is in the affirmation of the Genocide Convention that genocide already is a crime under custom that we actually find where uh, the incrimination itself comes from. Okay, the Geneva Conventions similarly do not create war crimes. The grave breaches. Of, of provisions of these conventions in particular, they merely oblige states to prosecute. Okay, so the direct incrimination of these offenses comes not through the treaties but through custom. And let me now quote Dapo on this in his presence, which is always lovely. Okay, uh, so for example, Dapo wrote in this Cassese handbook on, of international criminal justice that the transformation of the rule establishing violations of IHL by states. So that's who IHL. Ob- Ob, you know, makes obligations to, okay, into one which imposes individual criminal responsibility on individuals takes place under custom international law. Thus, all the references made to treaties creating rules of international criminal law, those provisions are not applied qua treaty, but rather as the context for a rule of custom which is developed on top of the treaty rule and which criminalizes the same conduct. Okay? So it's custom, you said that so well. So custom is what creates international crimes, the core crimes. At least it has so been in the past. So the question is, can a treaty do the same thing, right? If custom can bind all of us as we sit in this room telling us don't do genocide, guy, okay, why can't a treaty do the same thing? And in particular, does the Rome Statute do the same thing? Particularly with regard to those crimes where the Rome Statute departs from custom or from people normally think, is custom. Okay. So if you look at the drafting history of the Rome Statute, initially, there were proposals to include all these various suppression treaty crimes into the jurisdiction of the court. Some states proposed to include drug drug trafficking into the ICC's jurisdiction, right? And these are, again, crimes which do not exist in the absence of domestic law on the matter. So during the drafting, it was not really clear what the statute was supposed to do. Was it supposed to create new law, new substantive law, or merely reflect existing custom? If you look at what all the various drafters said during the process, some of them, like the first president of the court, Philip Kirsch, were quite emphatic about the ICC statute creating no new law, but merely codifying pre-existing law. Others were far more... Um, open to the idea that the statute was making changes. If you look at the text of the statute, that should be the first port of call in trying to answer whether it is meant to be substantive or jurisdictional, you will actually be at a loss. So the provisions which actually define the crimes are actually framed in jurisdictional terms they are within that part of the statute which says the jurisdiction of the court. Okay. Article 5 of the statute says these are the crimes within the jurisdiction of the court. If you look at the provisions, they are not framed like a code would be. For example, whoever willfully kills another shall be guilty of murder. No, they don't say that. They just specify all these elements. And you could you know, quite sensibly read them as merely setting out the subject matter jurisdiction of the court, rather than being addressed to individuals who are not mentioned at any point. But then there are numerous other provisions of the statute which cast doubt on a purely jurisdictional reading. In many places, the statute actually quite deliberately wants to divorce itself from the very mushy-wushy inquiry into custom. Okay, So it says, for example, when defining applicable law, Article 21 of the statute puts the statute first. The statute is the principal source of law. Okay. Article 22, which sets out the statute's version of the nullum crimen sin lege principle, says that a person shall, not, person shall not be criminally responsible under this statute. Unless the conduct in question constitutes at the time it takes place a crime within the jurisdiction of the court. not how ambiguous this is, right? On the one hand, you can interpret this as creating criminal responsibility under the statute. On the other hand, there's also references to the court's jurisdiction. Okay. Um, again, for example, Article 24 which deals with non retroactivity ratione personae, says that no person shall be criminally responsible under this statute for conduct prior to the entry into force of the statute. You see, if you look at this provision, this very strongly implies that, in fact, the statute is meant to create individual criminal responsibility regardless of what custom might say directly under the statute. And there are some other provisions in the statute which very much support a substantive reading for no other reason than that under custom there is no similar prohibition so for example the statute allows the court to punish contempt of court defences the statute allows the court to award damages against defendants even though there is no civil responsibility <laughs> of individuals under customary international law so you may well interpret all of this taken together as saying that the statute is in fact creating binding obligations on individuals directly. But the truth of the matter is really, from the text alone, there's no way to know. You can read the statute either way. Okay. Now let me turn to what the practical implications of all this business are. And this is really the uh, the most important bit. So the practical importance is really in how seriously we take the nullum crimin pr- principle. So in international criminal law, there has always been a tension since its inception between the principle of legality and the need to punish very, very bad people, for the very basic reason that international law substantively did not keep pace with the needs, the moral imperatives, to develop it. So in 1945, there was no international criminal law, really. Right? It just came proof into existence because Nazis needed to be punished. If you look at the Nuremberg judgment, the IMT there treats the principle of legality sort of very ambiguously. On one end, it treats it as a mere principle of justice, okay, which can be disregarded if you need to reach a more just outcome, which is to punish these people for something that was obviously wrongful, even if it was not technically illegal. Okay. In other parts of the judgment, it appears to be saying, but we are, by the way, applying pre-existing law. Okay. In, the, in the ad hoc tribunals in the 1990s, they were always saying, on the one hand, we very rigidly care about legality, but on the other hand, they faked custom whenever they needed to do. Um, So the problem, again, is whether the, whether the ICC is going to face the same dilemma. Let me give you one example in which the Rome Statute probably departs from custom. And that's the crime of recruiting child soldiers, which the Rome Statute makes creates you know, above the age of 15, um, which the Rome Statute create, uh, incriminates both in international and internal armed conflict. Before the special court of Sierra Leone, there was actually a prosecution for this crime, where the defendant challenged the prosecution under the SCSL statute on the basis that that crime did not exist under customary law and the special court could only apply custom. Okay. He could pro- pro- attest to that, you know, he could produce his evidence of that, that during the drafting of the Rome Statute, the U.S. delegation explicitly said that it does not consider the recruitment of child soldiers to be a war crime under customary law. That the Secretary General of the United Nations said in a report quite explicitly that there are serious doubts as to this being a crime under customary law. Okay. But the court did what courts do, which is you know they created all this, um, cooked everything up together, So the Convention on the Rights of the Child says this, even though the Convention on the Rights of the Child has nothing to do with custom in international criminal law. And this protocol says this, and this treaty says that. Therefore, this had to be custom. Okay. So that's just one example. There are many. So the issue is whether the same thing should be allowed to happen before the ICC. One obvious case where the ICC goes, the the Rome Statute quite clearly departs from custom, is in the modes of liability. So in the ad hoc tribunals, the main mode of liability used to get high-ranking defendants was joint criminal enterprise. The ICTY in Tadic said this is um, a form of liability which exists in custom, and we derive it from all this, (laughs) <laughs> Nuremberg and post-Nuremberg jurisprudence. Whether that was correct or not is beside the point. That's what they said that they were doing. Okay. In the Rome Statute, in part due to this civil law uh, continental reaction against what they thought was a, an an overly um, an, an, a concept of criminal liability open to abuse, like JC three in particular, they are trying. They're starting to use this idea of indirect perpetration, or um, this is essentially a spin-off of this German theory of control over crime from this German theorist, Klaus Okay, something they have this orgasmic word for in German, which is Organisationsherrschaft. I love that word. Okay. So it doesn't have a direct translation. So that's what they've been trying to use so far. All the high-ranking people before the ICC are indicted on the basis of this indirect theory of perpetration. So by indirect perpetration, you can, you can think of it in very narrow terms. You hold a gun to somebody's head, and you force them to shoot somebody else. Okay? That's really the very narrow form of indirect perpetration, which exists almost everywhere in one shape or another. But by indirect co-perpetration in particular... They, for example, regard Omar al-Bashir, the president of Sudan, as having co-perpetrated genocide or crimes against humanity in Darfur by controlling the crime. Okay. So whatever, you know, you might think that this is a good theory, you might think this is a bad theory of liability. I mean, I don't care, really. What it certainly is not, it's not customary. There has never been a prosecution on the basis of that theory, ever, Okay? In, before any other international criminal court. Some states have it in their domestic law, in some variety or another, but there are, again, many differences between states. Most don't have it. Okay, so you can't even derive it from the domestic laws of the relevant states. So it is certainly not custom. So the, the, the question, then, is can you prosecute people on the basis of a theory of liability which evidently is not customary in nature? If you thought that the statute was substantive, that it created law rather than just reflected it, okay, you would avoid that problem. You would say, I don't care whether indirect co-perpetration exists under customary law. It's enough that it, it exists under the statute. Thank you very much. Okay. So that's the big benefit of treating the ICC statute as being substantive in nature. And for practical purposes, if nothing, if nothing else, that would be great. That would preclude all these fictitious challenges that were allowed to happen before other criminal tribunals to the sense, to the, you know, in, in, to the effect that a particular crime is not customary, then forcing the court to pretend that it was. Okay. Now, however, if we read the, the statute as being substantive in nature, we run into a different kind of legality problem. And that is that the statute can actually apply ex post facto in at least two cases. It can apply ex post facto if the Security Council refers a situation to the court, which is the case with Sudan, which is the case with Libya. None of them, none of these states were parties to the statute beforehand. The court did not acquire jurisdiction over these crimes before they were committed. It all happened after the fact. So if you're prosecuting Omar al-Bashir, or you're prosecuting Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, you have to ask yourself, am I prosecuting them for violating the statute? Or am I prosecuting them for violating custom? Okay? And the second option is if a non-state party or a new state party extends the jurisdiction of the court to the time of, its end, of the statute's entry into force. So states can accept um, the jurisdiction of the court ad hoc. They don't have to be parties to the statute. And they can accept the jurisdiction of the court going all the way back to the 1st of July, 2002, when the statute entered into force. So what happened with the Palestinian Declaration, for example, that you will recall the prosecutor, after a long time of sitting on his hands, rejected by saying, finally, that Palestine was not a state. But Palestine, the entity calling itself that, referred to the court the situation in the occupied territories, when Israel is not a party to the statute, when none of the Israeli soldiers were nationals, or or most of them were not nationals of a party to the statute. So had the Palestinian Declaration been successful, the court would have acquired jurisdiction over an event when the statute could not have applied to these people at the relevant time. So there we have an ex post facto problem. Now before dealing with that problem, I want to deal with that general matter of whether treaties can bind individuals directly without the mediation of domestic law. Now, this is a crucial bit. So it's not about a treaty saying something, and then through domestic law mechanism, that kind of obligation is transposed against individuals. No. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking about treaties creating obligations for individuals directly without any mediator binding individuals directly. Okay. Now... I think the whole idea that individual is not a subject that therefore this cannot happen is a circularity, so I will just drop it. Okay. We know that treaties can create direct rights for individuals. That's the case with human rights treaties. That's what they do. Human rights treaties create rights in international law for you and me. We know that custom can create obligations for individuals. That's war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity. If these two things are true... I don't see why treaties couldn't also create obligations for individuals. The objection that comes to, to mind is the whole idea that treaties are like contracts. They cannot create obligations for anybody without their consent, the Pacta Tertius rule. To that, I would say that the Pacta tertiis rules applies to states and international organizations. It does not apply to individuals. States are not prohibited by international law from creating, through treaty, obligations for individuals subject to their authority. That's what they exist to do. And if you look, for example, at the ILC commentary to the draft articles on the law of treaties, they say quite explicitly that in international law, the justification for the Pacta Terzi's rules does not rest simply on the general concept of the law of contract, but on the sovereignty and independence of states. That's why states can't assume obligation under a treaty without their consent. There's no reason to apply that rule in the same way to individuals. Individuals can get obligations without their consent. If states can make custom, and states alone can make custom, that is binding on individuals, why couldn't they make treaties that would equally be binding on individuals? And they, in fact, have done so. They have done so rarely, because normally there is no point in creating obligations on individuals through international law. Domestic law would be far more effective and suited to that purpose. But states have since have done that. Look at the Geneva Conventions. So again, as I said, the grave breaches provisions do not bind individuals. They do not create criminal, substantive criminal law. And that's clear from the Travaux of the Convention. So for example, in the Travaux, it is stated that the diplomatic conference is not here to work out international penal law but is far more competent than we have tried to do that for years. An act only becomes a crime when this act is made punishable by a penal law. The conference is not making that law, but is undertaking to insert in the national penal laws certain acts enumerated as grave breaches of the convention, which will become crimes when they have been inserted in the national legislation. Okay. So that's not binding on individuals. What is binding, however, is Common Article Three. So, Common Article 3, which for the very first time started regulating non international, internal armed conflict, where at least one party is by definition a non state armed group. And in some cases, conflicts can exist only between two such groups. And the languages of Common Article 3, as well as of Additional Protocol 2, which expands on that, is clear that the state's parties intended to bind not just themselves but also any armed group involved, any party to the conflict. Now various theories have been offered in the literature as to how this this can be so. Some have argued, relying for example on the Nicaragua judgment of the ICJ, that Common Article 3 is binding on non-state armed groups by being customary, by reflecting custom. But that, to me, is a, is a very poor explanation, right, that assumes that custom binds individual and non-state actors and not just states. And again, if custom can do that, why can't treaties, OK? Another explanation, specifically in the German literature, is that non-state actors who control territory are, in effect, in effect, assuming some kind of personality on behalf of the state these so-called de facto regimes. But that is also, again, a dubious proposition for no other reason than in most internal conflicts non-state actors don't actually control the state's territory. They're not powerful enough to do so. uh, And we still consider them bound by IHL. A final theory that has been offered, which is, I think, right, is that States can bind non-state actors and individuals through treaties on the basis of the same exercise of power they've got under international law, which is prescriptive jurisdiction. So just like they have the power to to prescribe rules of their domestic law that apply to individuals on the basis of certain criteria, and they can do that singly, so they can do the same thing collectively in international law. So what any of these states could have done through their domestic law to create genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, they could do together in international law by pooling, if you will, their prescriptive jurisdiction. Some have criticized that theory as confusing, again, um, uh, as, as, as eliding the difference between domestic law and international law. Others, like Cassese, argued that Common Article 3 couldn't uh, bind non-state actors on the basis of the Pacta Territi's rules because they did not consent to it. Rather, that we infer their consent through various means. For example, by them not saying that they don't want to comply with IHL. This is, I think, trickery, right? I mean, it doesn't really do much. The, the most persuasive explanation is that states have the authority to bind non-state groups or, or whoever through treaties or through custom in whichever way they choose. Okay. Um, if you, I mean, the most sort of comprehensive uh, argument with regard to this point was made by my colleague at Nottingham Sandy Siva Kummer, in his ICLQ article on binding non-state, armed non state opposition groups. Okay. And again, we have very occasionally in treaty practice instances of state very explicitly creating obligations for individuals. Think, for example, of the African Charter on Human People's Rights, the Banjul Charter, which, like all other human rights treaties, creates rights for individuals. But the African Charter is specific in that it also has one section on human duties. So it imposes duties on individuals. Now, whether it's a good idea, a bad idea, whether that brings anything in practice, that's a separate matter. But obviously, state, the states who concluded that treaty thought themselves to have the power to create duties for individuals. Okay. So, in short, I think that states have every right to bind individuals directly through treaties, even though these individuals don't have the capacity to consent to them. There's no reason to have a custom fetish and to say that only custom can create international criminal law, even though normally that's the case. If that is so, there is no reason not to say that the Rome Statute itself is one such treaty. We don't have to look at Custom with regard to any particular crime or any particular mode of liability in the statute. It is enough that it's in the statute for the vast majority of situations. However, in those situations where the court acquires jurisdiction over the events ex post facto, like Darfur, like Libya, in those situations, we are on very tricky ground with respect to the legality principle. And I would thus argue that the court should only in those cases read down the statute and read down any charges so that they comport to custom. So Omar al-Bashir could not be prosecuted under indirect co-perpetration. He would have to be prosecuted under something else. Gaddafi, sadly, no longer with us, again, could only be prosecuted on the same basis. If his son, through some political magic actually ends up in The Hague rather uh, than stays in Libya, he also could not be prosecuted under those theories of liability. Okay. Because that's the only way really to take the principle of legality seriously. So I will end on that. Thank you.